Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Uh, I would like to welcome everybody to the Oklahoma Council of the Blind Convention. And our theme this year is join OCB or be a member of OCB, overcoming challenges and barriers. And that's what we see that we have the ability to do is as a group of visually impaired individuals, that's what we're doing all the time. I want to welcome agency personnel and also consumers as well. Today is going to be a packed day with information that we believe will be good for everybody. And this is our first virtual meeting. And with ACB's help, American Council of the Blind, this is going to go smooth as anything. Um, we've been working in the background to make sure everything falls into place. And uh, I believe it's just going to go like clockwork. It's very different from for some of us old timers who haven't uh, grown up with all this technology. And uh, it's one thing I have been learning since I've retired from the agency over a year ago. It's pretty amazing how time flies. And I know some of you who are on this are co-workers that I had, and some of you are brand new, and I don't know you. And hopefully sometime during today, we'll have the opportunity to meet and greet. I am next, I will introduce our president of the Oklahoma Council of the Blind, um, She's been our president for the past four years. She worked for the agency as well for many, many years and has been enjoying her retirement. And um, I'm sure she'll tell you a little bit about what she's been up to. But here is Vicki Golightly. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, a pleasure to partner with the American Council of the Blind. Thank you, ACB staff and volunteers for streaming and for hosting this webinar. We couldn't have done it without you. As Elaine said, we are new to this virtual arena and it's taken all of the convention committee and the partnership with ACB to help put this together. As Elaine already stated, welcome to our consumers, friends, staff, anybody else that I um, haven't mentioned. We hope this will be an educational day for you and also a fun day. I've been retired from the agency for six years and still have kept going on with um, the American Council of the Blind and Oklahoma Council of the Blind. The partnership with Services for the Blind is 
just priceless for the Oklahoma Council of the Blind. It's, it's great to have such valuable partners. So I hope that today we all learn some new things, meet new people, and just thank you for everyone for being here. I am, as Elaine said, the outgoing lame duck president, <laughs> but they won't get rid of me. I'll still be in the background doing things. Thank you again, everybody, for attending. And uh, feel free after the convention to send us some comments, what we did well, what we can improve in, new things that could be done. Because as, as Elaine and I have both stated, we are new to the virtual arena. Maybe next year we'll have a hybrid convention like many affiliates are doing. So next, I would like to introduce Jay Doudna, who incidentally is married to Elaine Boykin. And Jay is going to go over some of the program with us. You will note he has a broadcaster's voice. So without <laughs> further ado, I'll turn this over to Jay. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is the broadcaster's voice speaking. And uh, very glad to be with you this morning. So we have uh, quite a bit to talk about, and we'll be joining Mark Reichert in a little bit here. Um, this uh, convention, as we've mentioned several times already, is new to us. We're hoping that this is the only time we have to do this totally virtually. We're hoping that everything will settle down, and before too long, we will... Um, we'll be able to be back together again uh, in 2022. You know, the um, program this morning, I just thought I'd run down quickly the way things were going here uh, with the program. First of all, at uh, in just a little bit here, uh, Mark Reichert will join us, and he will uh, be talking about AER and what AER is and the many things that are going on with the group AER, and you'll learn about what that AER means if it's, if it's something brand new to you. Also, uh, then around 10.30, I'm giving times for um, our central time here. Around 10.30, uh, Marilyn Sanders will be joining us to give us a presentation that I know is going to be meaningful to all of us. It's, it's something that we've thought about for a long time, and, and Marilyn's going to remind us of a lot of things we don't know. And then at 11.30, we, you know, we've had sponsors uh, for this year's convention, and I'm very pleased to say that the three of our sponsors, um, we have to think of them as being in, um, as though they were uh, at a convention, and they were at their booth. So at 11.30 this morning, we'll be joining Envision America, and that'll be, you can learn all about what's going on with Envision America, and I learned something in preparing for this that I didn't know. Um, Envision America had moved some of its offices to um, Florida, and maybe Charlotte, Glass can talk about that a little bit too. 
and I know she has other things to say. And then Vanda Pharmaceuticals will join us around noon today to talk about what's going on with non-24. And uh, if you don't know about that, that's something you might want to uh, stay around for because non-24 is, uh, is something that's with a lot of us. And uh, if you don't know about it, there'll be a chance for you to learn about it. And those of you that work with uh, clients who are um, visually impaired, you might want to consider what non-24 is. And, and so you'll know whether this person might have it. Um, then at uh, 1230, one of our other sponsors, Cozy Custom Cards, my wife, uh, Elaine Boykin, who never changed her name, but she is really my <laughs> wife. Um, my wife, Elaine Boykin, uh, will be here with Joan Blake, and they're going to talk about what they do with cards. And uh, they're making these special greeting cards, which we do Braille. I'm the Braille department for that. So that's some idea of what's going to happen this morning. Then we have an afternoon program as well that will continue around 1 o'clock. So between uh, your lunch and whatever you do this morning, we hope you'll stay with us for all of these things. It's already, uh, I have 10 past 9 on my watch. And so I I guess um, I could introduce Mark. And Mark, you can go for an hour or so or longer. And maybe, hopefully, some of you will be asking questions. Mark's going to allow time uh, to ask questions. Um, Mark Reichert is Intamin, Interim Intamin. He's also Intamin. Interim Executive Director of the Association in Education and Rehabilitation of Blindness and Visual Impairment. He'll explain exactly what that is. So, Mark, um, I heard you're on, so if you're ready to go, we appreciate you being here. And again, uh, I know that one of the things you're going to talk about, what is AER? And I know that AER used to have what they called divisions. So maybe you'll want to explain what all that is. And uh, if, it's, if it's changed, you can explain that too. So here's Mark Reichert. <laughs> Hello, one and all. Hope you all can hear me loud and clear. Um, very fun to get to talk to my good ACB friends and uh, Jay. Fabulous to get to get a little little reconnected with you here over the last couple of months. Um, and uh, we, uh, the crazy days <laughs> for sure. And uh, crazy times to be a quote-unquote interim executive director. So what the heck is an interim director? Uh, it's a guy who uh, wasn't expecting to take this job, uh, who uh, was asked to come join the AER staff as the boss, uh, at least of the staff, uh, during a time uh, when the previous uh, executive director and the AER board parted ways. Um, and... Uh, you know, it was certainly not expected. Uh, and AER is uh, in the process of moving toward actually opening up a, an official uh, uh, search for a permanent executive director. I get asked all the time the million dollar question Do you want the job? Are you going to apply for it? And the answer is just wait and see. How's that for a non responsive? I mean, I'll, I'll be very candid with you instead of being so coy. 
they, they, they've been interested in having a search, uh, starting a search for the permanent director for a while. And I've been in this interim sort of status since March of last year, quite literally two weeks before, you know, COVID. Well, I mean, I think we knew about it, but before it like really became a thing, at least for, for the U.S. Uh, so, you know, it was, a, it was how fun, right? Uh, thanks so much for asking me to come join uh, you guys. You're joining an organization that just parted ways from with its previous exec, and now you've got a you know national plague on your hands. And so it was a it was a kind of a strange time to start there. But uh, the the job search has not actually commenced as of yet. I think it may be beginning next month. We'll see what they want to do. And they've been working on revising the job description uh, and roles for the AER uh, executive director. So. Uh, you know, all all joking around aside, I'm as interested as probably a lot of folks are in AER to see what it is, and that's been a very con- uh, uh, what's the confidential process, of course, as they've been developing uh, a, the board has been developing a job description. So I'm, I'm I'll be interested, like everybody else, to see what their priorities are and uh, what they say their expectations are for whoever the new person will be, and we'll just have to take it from there. Um, I don't imagine there'll be profound changes, but there may be emphasis in different emphases there than uh, what uh, folks have done in the past. One example of that would be how the extent to which the AER executive director is expected to be involved with public policy and advocacy um, over the course of AER's 37 years in existence as AER, and I'll say more about that in a second. Uh, there have been periods of time when uh, public policy involvement was explicitly you know, a, a top priority for the executive director. Uh, yours truly was the executive director of AER before, from 2001 to 2005, which is, I'm sure, the principal reason why they asked yours truly to come back uh, you know, during this crazy period, because they were looking for someone who had had the experience before to sort of help them through this transition. So, of course, I was glad to do that. But there have been other times. Oh, I'm sorry. So when I when they brought me on in 2001, of course, advocacy was a huge part of what it is that they wanted to do. And, of course, that's near and dear to my heart. There have been other times, though, in AER's past when uh, it's not that they were saying we don't want to do it or we don't care, but essentially letting other groups take the lead on that, that they said, well, gee, we really want to focus on membership development or whatever, pick, pick your favorite priority. Uh, so who knows? We'll see what um, the AER board wants to do. I said AER has been in existence for 37 years, and that's true, uh, but it's been in existence as AER uh, for a much shorter period of time than has uh, the, organi- you know, the professionals in the blindness and vision impairment world uh, have, have come together in an organized nonprofit fashion. So if you want to go back all the way sort of to the beginning of who and what AER is now and what it was then, there'd be two primary groups. Uh, the a group of educators, which you know they went through uh, a number of organizational name changes. The one prior, immediately prior to AER that maybe some of you may know or remember was AEVH. Um, Association for Education of the Visually Handicapped. That name alone tells you exactly how old 
that name would be. And then on the uh, adult side of things, uh, rehab, employment, independent living, uh, that was AAWB, American Association of Workers for the Blind. And, uh, you know, these two groups, for a host of practical as well as ideological reasons, decided to merge in the early 1980s. And the American Foundation for the Blind was very generous to AER, uh, what became AER, in helping to endow uh, AER with, I believe the gift was $2 million. Uh, and uh, I hear uh, AFB is doing pretty well this year money-wise, but it's no secret that uh, AFB for a while uh, has, you know, as all nonprofits have, has been struggling. I don't think AFB is in a position to give $2 million bucks today. So if you have ambitions of trying to get money out of them, uh, God bless you. Uh, but we certainly uh, benefited, AER did, from that uh, you know, generosity, tremendous generosity from AFB. Um, and uh, so there you go. So you say, well, okay, so what exactly is this group anyhow? <laughs> so if you are, there's probably any number of you who may very well be AER members, and thank you for that. Uh, but um, essentially, AER is the association in the field. There's nothing quite like it, where if you're doing any kind of work, uh, with kids, adults, uh, working age adults or older people uh, experiencing vision loss of whatever degree, and including if uh, people may have additional disabilities, uh, certainly you are either one of our members or you ought to be um, because there's a place for you. Uh, Jay mentioned about divisions, and he's absolutely right. So our divisions and the structure of AER is a, a little bit different than the way uh, ACB is structured with its so-called special interest affiliates, where, you know, these are uh, separately incorporated, essentially standalone organizations. AR doesn't do that. Our divisions are really caucuses or sort of special interest, you know, groups, as it were, who get together primarily for, uh, excuse me, working on settling on position statements, right? So the O&M division, Orientation Mobility Division of AER, which is our largest division, of course, is prolific in the development of uh, position statements. And uh, if you are an O&Mer or have ever worked with one, then you know, and I mean this in, of course, a very flattering way. I don't mean it sarcastically. No, no, no. Uh, that uh, O&Mers have opinions, and they are willing to share them with you. Uh, uh, and uh, in, 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 in their, their verbosity setting is set even higher than mine, So, and that's saying a lot. So uh, good for them. They get together quite frequently and develop quite a number of position statements. It can be on anything, the, pra- the you know, elements of the orientation mobility professional practice or perhaps a public policy issue kicking about uh, someplace, uh, those kinds of things. So we have divisions. I think we're up to 17 of them now. So if you are an itinerant, there's an itinerant teacher's division, the university professor's division, the so-called personnel preparation division, uh, low vision therapy. Um, oh, good grief. The moment I start to have vision rehab therapy, um, uh, a whole division focused on so, so-called neurological vision impairment or more commonly known as CDI, either cortical or cerebral vision impairment. So uh, there's quite a few, um, uh, multiple disabilities and deaf blindness one. Uh, a newest, our newest division is the International Affairs Global Issues Group, which is uh, small but uh, ambitious. And uh, they really want to uh, get AER much more actively involved on the international scene. AER is 
just like ACB, a member of the World Blind Union, uh, and we do participate in the meetings of the North American Caribbean region of the WBU. But quite candidly, and this is true now, has been for the last 18 months since I've been here, but certainly in the past for as long as I uh, can remember, um, AER has been a, you know, there, there to support has not really played any kind of major leadership role in WBU for many, many years. And, uh, you know, I'm not really making a commentary, uh, statement when I say that. It's just, it's just a fact. Um, so, uh, anyone in the field of work with an individual who was blind originally impaired is or should be one of our members. And, uh, what are the things that we hope to accomplish? Well, I mean, AER is all about first and foremost, uh, advancing the profession, the professions, right? Working with those of us who are blind or visually impaired. And by doing, they primarily do that through, uh, continuing education and professional development kinds of activities. So I'm really proud of the fact that during this 18 month period and what is, you know, by any measure, a, you know, a critical, one might even say a fragile time for, for AER as it is for so many small nonprofits. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, there, we have three and a half staff. I'm one of them. Uh, the half is not the top half or the bottom half of a person. I mean, they're part time. Uh, but, uh, we work with a lady by the name of Ellie Dupre, uh, who may be a name that some folks know, very active in the state of Florida in the Florida age among the various Florida agencies for the blind served for many years as the executive director of the Broward County lighthouse down there in South Florida and a fantastic human in general principle. And she focuses in particular on our accreditation program. Some of you may either remember with fondness or with derision, an organization called NAC or the national accreditation accreditation council uh, has a longer name, essentially, you know, Accreditation Council of Agencies Serving the Blind, that kind of thing. So NAC had been for decades uh, the agency and the organization, uh, you know, standalone independent organization in the blindness field, uh, accrediting specialized schools and uh, private nonprofit service agencies. And AER took over that function as NAC essentially dissolved uh, in, you know, about, uh, let's see, four years ago now, I think. And, um, and, and it's been, we've been prospering that program significantly. And AER has for many years been doing, uh, accrediting university programs, right? The actual colleges and universities who have a TVI program, an orientation mobility program to train the next generation of professionals in our field. AER had been doing an accrediting program for those universities for a while. So all of that now is under that accreditation umbrella. So that is a, you know, again, professional development and quality assurance kind of thing that AER, that role is, is what AER is playing for the field. But it's not really a primary focus of AERs. We do it because it's an important thing to do. And the board and staff leadership in 2017, 2018 thought that it was so critical to preserve uh, accreditation in the blindness system that they felt that it was important that Perhaps someone should step forward and that AER would have the capacity to step forward. So that's why we did it. But primarily, our focus is on individual professions and helping them to continue to thrive in the professions that they've chosen to work in. So we don't do, you know, the universities prepare them. They get launched 
or perhaps they are uh, trained in an, in an agency setting, a private agency or a public agency like a state folk rehab agency. But then uh, they're off and uh, the little bird has left the nest. And so we're there to try to be a, a safety net, a, a perch to land on, whatever. And one of the things that we're trying to do is to build a robust continuing education platform. Uh, we launched it earlier this year in February. It's called AER eLearning. It's all just one one big string, no dashes, curly cues, whatever. AER eLearning.org. And you're certainly welcome to to come and and uh, browse what is a growing catalog. I think we've got just over a hundred now uh courses there that are available to to the world, to members and non-members. There is a a, a small fee uh, for that, but members get a, a discount, of course, substantial discount for going there. Uh, but we want to be building this site out not only for paid content for which individual professionals can sit and earn continuing education credits, and AERELearning.org facilitates that whole process. It's all automated. So when you hear the little one hour or you know couple hour lecture or presentation or workshop, you uh, click the button that says, okay, I've seen this. I'd like to get my continuing in credit. And uh, you answer a couple of quick questions and lo and behold, you're authorized to download your certificate and you can, uh, you know, and there you go. And now you can keep it electronically or of course print it for your own records or from the case of some people like TVIs uh, or perhaps folks who are rehab counselors, you can then of course take that either electronic version or obviously paper version, if you like, uh, of your certificate and report then your completion of those hours. So <clears throat> it's a, we're not so much looking at this AERELearning.org thing as a, as a, as a huge, you know, revenue generator for us. I mean, it would be a delight if it ever grew up to into that over the course of time. It's really meant to be a way for AER to provide to its members into the blindness field, continuing at opportunities uh, that meet their individual needs. So that's a primary thing that we're doing. We've never, we hadn't done anything quite like this ever. And uh, it was important in my mind when I took over this job uh, a year ago, March, that we do something different and fill a void, particularly because of COVID and because we had to say goodbye to the big conference that we were going to be doing last July. AER made the choice, unlike some other groups who, you know, either uh, just kind of shifted everything over to virtual right away and were pretty nimble at doing that. We, we AER was not in a position to do that uh, for a, a bunch of reasons. Perhaps no reason any more significant than the fact that our folks really, really, really uh, get into being together in person. I think we all appreciate the value of that, but it seems that for sure among AER members and guests uh, to our field that uh, that sort of in-person networking, mentoring uh, is absolutely indispensable. And I think the, the thought was, since we're not in a capacity technologically to do our big conference remotely in just a matter of a couple of months, perhaps we ought to... Uh, cancel our show and wait for next time. Well, here it is, uh, and getting to the end of 2021, unbelievably. And uh, yeah, we are going to do a big conference next summer in St. Louis, Missouri from July 20th to 24. And uh, I, my, my joke, even it's not very funny, uh, is uh, we will be holding a conference 
in St. Louis from July 20th to 24th. There may only be 37 people there, and we may end up being broke uh, when it's over, but we will be holding a conference at that time. And, uh, you know, I'm actually kind of optimistic. I think, you know, it's 10 months away. I think people are absolutely chomping into bit to uh, get back together again. And so far, the very initial indications seem to be that uh, this could very well be one of the, the uh, you know, one of the better uh, attended conferences that AER has done. So, of course, the primary thing that we have done in the past for people in terms of continuing ed is doing these conferences. Uh, the conference we do is called the AER Biennial International Conference because, of course, it's held every two years. Duh. But for a while, AER was doing conferences every year uh, from, oh, gee, gee uh, like uh, 2009 or 10, something like that, till about 2016, 2017. And, you know, conferences are expensive things, as uh, the planners of this one know all too well. And um, it can really be pretty overwhelming. And I think there there were, you know, some of those conferences that AER did were quite uh, profitable in a sense. Others of them, not so much. Uh, and, it, you know, that, that kind of sort of thing uh, adds up over the course of time. So AER is kind of very much gone back to this business of let's only do a conference once every two years and uh, we'll see if that continues. Um, but you know, if that's your primary thing for delivering continuing education content to your people and you only do it once every two years, and especially in 2020, you don't do it at all. Well, that's bad news. Uh, it's by new- bad news financially, but, but more importantly for our members and others, it's, they don't get continuing ed credit, and they certainly don't get the opportunity to grow in their professional skills. So anyway, uh, we are really hoping that 2022 comes off, and would love to talk to you, anybody more about that if you'd like to find out more about that. We just, a day or two ago, uh, announced the availability of uh, uh, the opening, actually, or the beginning of us accepting proposals uh, to do sessions at our conference. And uh, if you just go to our website, aerbvi.org, you should be able to find the link uh, for doing uh, that. If you like, it's really quite a simple process. And we've tried to uh, develop a system that is as accessible as it can be. I, I'm, I'm confident that it's amazingly accessible. Our accessibility committee has pawed over that thing extensively. We made lots of changes to it. And the company that we're working with is a company called eShow, E-S-H-O-W. And they do a lot of this sort of thing of helping to facilitate organizations putting on uh, events. And our friends at ATIA, the Assistive Technology Industry Association, puts on a huge conference every year in, uh, in Orlando. It's an amazing show. And of course, because they are cross-disability and focused on tech, you better believe that they have a commitment to accessibility and those people use eShow as well. So it's great that we're working with a company like that to help put our stuff on. But uh, give some thought to if this is at all of interest to you, putting, considering putting on a, a, a session for our conference uh, next summer. And uh, what, what does it take? It's, you know, starts with an idea, of course, but your conference proposal is really all about come up with a title, a brief little summary of what you might want to see in the conference program to describe what your session is all about. And then they do ask, we do ask for you to develop three learning objectives for your session, which is, of course, valuable for credit purposes. 
uh, and a bit of, of a longer narrative, uh, certainly no more than 300 words of, you know, what it is you'd like to talk about. You might say, well, gee, this doesn't sound like this applies to me at all. What the heck would I have to offer? And I would say, clearly, uh, you are selling yourself short because it would be my argument that whether you're working in the profession, in the professions serving blind folks like us uh, or not, uh, you have certainly a perspective to share, even if it's a perspective that says, you know, my experiences working with O&M instructors over the years. And if you want to, you know, have essentially a little case study of and talk about your experiences, what you found, your challenges, what you wish you saw differently uh, in, in either the professionals themselves or the kinds of experiences you had. Sure, it's one person's experience, but quite frankly, if you write a compelling case about why the particular things you've gone through or seen uh, should be of interest to others and particularly, you know, ought to inform what professionals themselves do in the future. Uh, I bet a presentation even like that would be certainly seriously considered uh, for sure. So just be thinking about that just because it's AER and just because it says, oh yeah, this is, that's that group for the professionals. And just because you may not be one doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a home for you. I would argue, in fact, there most assuredly is and should be. Uh, and so uh, we do need to be working more closely with consumers, uh, the consumer groups and, and ACB in particular, more than we do. I'll wrap up, I think, Jay, by kind of turning then pivoting a little bit then to issues. I've said we do, you know, AER is all about continuing ed for individual members. We do the accreditation function in the blindness system. A uh, big conference every couple of years, which we're really proud of. Uh, and for sure, this uh, new sort of continuing end platform that we're doing uh, is hopefully a brand new uh, area uh, for us to grow. But AER is also about being involved in our blindness community, just straight up in terms of being a partner uh, in our system. So I am totally blind. I've been totally blind all my life, 52 years old. I only feel like I'm about 16. And some people might say I act like it, but uh, the birth certificate would seem to indicate that I'm actually over 52 years old. So I guess, you know, we have to trust the the, the documentation, I suppose. Uh, but I uh, was in from 2001 to 2005, AER's first uh, executive director who had any kind of a visual impairment. Uh, and so since this is kind of a 2.0 uh, thing uh, for my AR experience now, I can't really say I'm the second director. I'm just the same human, obviously. And here I am back again. Uh, uh, in the terms of the board of directors, and in particular, the president of the organization, you know, the president and board members are uh, elected by the membership every two years. And uh, we have a little bit of a different structure uh, than ACB does. We do have an office of, you know, president elect uh, and not a quote unquote first vice president or second vice president like we have uh, in ACB uh, land. But the president elect in AER is elected to that office, to the office of president elect and automatically rolls into the presidency at the conclusion of that president-elect's uh, two-year term in that role, if you follow me. So when you're elected to, <laughs> to serve as a, uh, you know, an officer in AER, and particularly the president, what you're actually committing to is a two-year apprenticeship, essentially, as the president-elect 
serving for a president who has already served on the board for two years in that president-elect role. Putting it another way, when you get elected to the board, particularly the board presidency, you're in for six years. Uh, when you get after your two-year term as president-elect, then you get to be president for two years, and then you stay on. We have an office of immediate past president. And so the immediate past president is the person who, uh, even if it's more sort of honorary, uh, is the person who is the chair of the Biennial International Conference. So the idea being you want your most experienced person to kind of have that role of being the conference chair. And there are pluses and minuses of, uh, to that structure, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Um, by the time someone gets to that point, they've already served as a president-elect or president for AUR for four years. And, you know, gee whiz, they kind of get a little tired. Uh, imagine that. And uh, maybe they're they're ready to move on. Others, of course, are dynamos, and uh, you know you couldn't hold them down if you wanted to. So it's a it can be a mixed bag. I go through all this to say our current president, Neva Fairchild, uh, is herself blind and works for the American Foundation for the Blind, and so she's done for many years. She's uh, in Texas, and uh, I, this is the first time in AER's history, and I would expect that it's true for our predecessor organizations. You know those ones I mentioned before that came together, merged in the mid-80s. This is the first time when AER has had both the chief staff officer, that's moi, and a president, the chief elected officer, namely the, the president, uh, who's Neva, as who are both who are both line of visually impaired. And uh, let, 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 let us hope that that is a sign of continued uh, uh, change in the organization uh, you might say, gee, it brings up a good point. How many blind folks are actually in AER? We don't necessarily know the answer in any kind of concrete way because we certainly don't demand that people provide that information when they plunk down their member dues. Uh, but I think it's probably safe to say we're talking about maybe 10 to 15%. I don't know that we have, you know, and, and so don't publish that in the New York Times as though that that's, you know, well, Mark Reichert said there were only 10 to 15 percent. It could be more. I, I just that's just my feeling about it, uh, my sense, just informally. But that should not be in any kind of indication about the extent to which AER plays well in the sandbox with other blindness organizations, particularly ACB and AFB, the American Foundation for the Blind. For sure, if AER has best friends, Right. AER's organizational BFFs are ACB and AFB for sure, have been for decades. And, uh, you don't, uh, you can't break up, can't break up family. You can, but you, you're, you're heartbroken when you do. So for sure, AER is totally committed to being in lockstep with our consumer friends, uh, and also the researchers and others at AFB. We also work with a, a, I mean, a host of other organizations. Yours truly, for example, currently serves, you know, while I'm doing this interim gig uh, for AER, I serve as the public policy coordinator, head, director, whatever accolade you want to throw there for an organization called Vision Serve Alliance, which if you've never heard of it before, you probably say, huh, what is that? It does sound a little funny. Uh, it used to be called the National Council of Private Agencies for the Blind and Visually Impaired, or NCPABDI. Can you believe it? Uh, I, there is no other field or, that I've ever been associated with that has organizations with any names longer than names of organizations in the blindness system. I, I don't know what's up with that. 
But in any case, um, we uh, th that organization that I uh, mumbled about there a second ago about the private agencies, it's, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's in a group, an association comprised of the lighthouses across the country, the various industries programs, and this particular association I'm referring to, which they renamed some years ago as Vision Serve Alliance as some kind of an attempt to describe a little bit more creatively in the name of the group what they're all about, uh, is, you know, this is an association that's very committed to representing the interests of private service provider organizations, as well as being an umbrella for a lot of the national blindness groups. ACB is a member, ACB nationally is a member of Vision Serve Alliance, as is AER. I could name drop all your favorite groups, APH, et cetera. They're just about any of the ones you can imagine are likely under this Vision Serve Alliance umbrella. And as the, as the name would suggest, it is an alliance. I mean, it's a separate association. It's a 501c3 nonprofit, but it is an alliance of all of those groups. And what are they allied to do? Well, a bunch of stuff, but it's for, certainly for my uh, money, the best thing that they're doing is being essentially a forum or an umbrella for the various groups to come together to work on national public policy. And so, of course, as some of you well know, I'm a total nerd and I love the policy stuff. It's just, I'm just in love with it. I've been part of uh, the public policy work in the blindness system for a very long time. And uh, it just, it just, there's nothing quite like being part of a group of amazingly dedicated, pretty bright, amazing people. I don't know why they let me in, but uh, they did. And uh, to, you know, try to actually make things happen and change things. And, to look back now after what, 27, 28 years and say, wow, look at some of the things we were able to do. We got audio description. We got our, you know, more, more cell phones to talk. We've got our TVs talking for heaven's sake and just go down the line. Uh, textbooks, better textbooks anyhow, uh, for blind kids, uh, hopefully more on time than they were before. And now, of course, as we move to a more, you know, all digital kind of educational, service delivery system, trying to make more of those technologies accessible. Yeah, have we fixed all the problems? Good grief, no. Uh, and there's a lot of things that still need to be done. For sure, that's true for services to older people with vision loss. So under the, with, with the urging or whatever, the impetus of this group, this Vision Serve Alliance group, that which AER, ACB, fill in the blank are all part of, we formed something called the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition, or ABLNC. And I could talk a lot, well, as you can plainly see, I already do. Uh, I could talk a lot about what that uh, coalition does. But uh, for my part of it, it's the development of something called Teddy Joy's Law. Teddy Joy Remheld, maybe is a name that some people may know. I did not know her terribly well, but boy, what I knew of her was both impressive and frightening uh, because she was a force of nature. She has gone on to be with the Lord uh, some years ago, but uh, we, uh, you know, just a tremendous, fierce uh, advocate, someone who was a low vision person herself. And of course, uh, also professionally was very much working in the aging and geriatrics and of course, cross disability space too. So uh, just a, a phenomenal person who was very much involved in both ACB and prior to that, the National Federation of the Blind. So very much involved with consumerism and blindness. And it seemed to make all the sense in the world that she should be uh, the namesake 
for a piece of legislation which we are developing, a comprehensive uh, piece of public policy, as I say, called Teddy Joy's Law, that among many other things would help to improve services to older people with vision loss. Certainly the older blind program needs a lot of attention and certainly more money, and we try to do that uh, in this bill. Among many other things, ACB's board of directors most recently adopted a resolution. I did write it, guilty, Your Honor, uh, that essentially uh, said that ACB was uh, endorsing the Teddy Joy's law and that likely it will be uh, a priority that we talk about at legislative seminar uh, in February. So you'll be hearing a lot more about it if you haven't heard a lot about it already. That's just I got to get wrapping up here, Jay, but uh, that's just one example of a number of the things that we're focused on. That's in the aging space. Of course, yours truly cannot do any kind of presentation without uh, bragging about my my baby, uh, the Cogswell Macy bill. Uh, for the three people left who might not have ever heard of it uh, before, the Alice Cogswell and Ann Sullivan Macy Act is a piece of legislation that's been introduced several times in Congress now. And of course, all you have to do is turn on the television to listen to the news and you know how bizarre uh, things are in Congress uh, or in Washington in general principle. So that's one of many reasons why this legislation hasn't advanced more down the pike than it has. But really, uh, the purpose of the legislation, as those, as its name would suggest, uh, is to comprehensively uh, reform special education uh, for blind, visually impaired, deaf hard of hearing and deafblind kiddos. And Alice Cogswell was the first deaf girl to be formally educated in the U.S., gosh, 150 years ago. And of course, Annie Sullivan was Helen Keller's much loved teacher. So we thought that naming uh, the bill after those two, um, we're plugging ahead on that. I know ACB has certainly been tremendously helpful in trying to get the bill reintroduced again in this Congress, and uh, hopefully we'll see some movement there. But, you know, as you can see, a lot on the plate. A lot of stuff that yours truly is trying to juggle under uh, strange, <laughs> strange circumstances, not only in terms of being in this sort of interim role and with all the sort of change and transition and what the heck's going to happen next kind of place where AR finds itself. But, you know, as we all have been living in this in COVID world, I mean, who to thunk it? Uh, I keep saying to some of my best friends, you know, I, I would not surprise me. If I woke up one morning and it was like, oh, you know, God, I had one hell of a long, bizarre dream. And let me tell you what all happened. <laughs> if anybody's going, this is what happened in the last two, two and a half years. And I'll have something more to say about that uh, tomorrow when we talk a little bit more about mental health and well-being and sort of my own uh, challenge with that um, over these last couple of years. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to, to talk about that. It sounds funny to say happy to talk about it. Um, it I, I appreciated, Jay, your offer to let me come and do that. I've, yeah, I've talked about it. I've talked about it. We're looking forward to that. I've, I've, I've talked a little bit about that uh, on uh, you know podcasts and things like that with uh, ACB podcasts and other things. But honestly, um, not only do I hope it's of help uh, to talk about things like that directly with people for their own purposes, but believe me, it is also you know, part of my own uh, healing, growth, progress, whatever, to also be able to you know talk with my friends about stuff uh, like that. So I, I really appreciate that opportunity. Anyway, talk far too long, Jay. I apologize. I'll shut up and time for well, questions, no, comments, I whatever. Don't think, I don't think you have to apologize. I think um, 
this might be a time before before we go on. I want to talk a little bit about the advocacy efforts and how we're doing it uh, yeah. with respect to uh, COVID. But before we do that, let, why don't we see if uh, anybody wants question. to ask a question? Anybody in the audience? Does anybody have a question for Mark at this point? If anybody has a question, they'd like to raise their hand. You now know how to do it. You can look for it. And if you don't, uh, Mark and I are going to go and talk about this advocacy efforts um, and how you're how we're doing it um, during COVID. That seems to be the um, the big challenge now. Um, Mark, this is Vicky. I do have a question. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering about what division you would think would be appropriate uh, for someone like me. I've been retired for six years, uh, worked in blindness for 40 years. 20 years of it was at the Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped as the public information officer and Mm -hmm. real specialist. So Mm -hmm. do you have a division that you would suggest? Oh, well, let's see. So we do have a division called the leadership division, which is a division as division one, which uh, is focused among other things about uh, mentoring people who've been in leadership positions for, you know, a while. And they mean that in a very expansive way, right? You don't necessarily have to be a CEO far from it. Uh, but it's uh, people who have been in the field, therefore their leadership is, or their, you know, uh, expertise is decades in the making, uh, and how uh, so that you can be in a position to help mentor other folks who would like to sort of, you know, come up through the come up the ladder, as it were. Uh, so that certainly is a, it would be an intriguing place to go. Uh, I, I should be careful to say people are not required to be in a division. Uh, if you are a member of one division uh, or two or three, uh, those memberships, those division memberships are included in your AR membership, which is to say you don't have to pay extra for up to three divisions that you might want to choose. Um, beyond three, then you do have to charge a division. The fourth fourth or more division that's, that you choose, if they have dues, you might have to pay those. Typically, that's like 10 bucks a year or something. But in any case, uh, wow. Uh, uh, let's see. Library for the month. There are certainly, uh, there's a, a, a technology and information uh, division, for sure. Uh, yes, there are an awful lot of whiz-bang techno freaks on there who I could certainly benefit learning from in terms of how to just operate something, uh, you know, complicated like a laptop. But they also are, have a kind of, a, again, a pretty expansive sense of what they do there, that their focus is very much on technology and information systems generally. So it may very well be uh, that there might be some interest there. Honestly, I mean, as someone who has the kind of professional background that you have, I would think any number of the divisions would be certainly the international affairs one, even if it was simply that you wanted to follow what they were, what they were all about. There's no uh, rule in AER uh, that, uh, excuse me, I put that the wrong way. There is a rule in AER that says uh, division meetings are open to the entire membership, which is to say, you might say, well, gee, then why in the world would you ever pay money uh, for your fourth or more you know, division choice? If anyone can go to any division meeting, in fact, I'm entitled to go to any division meeting. Why in the world? Would, and the answer is, if if you want to vote right in that division, uh, especially for its leadership, they have 
chairs, chairs elect, of course, that sort of thing for the divisions. If you want to vote in the elections or otherwise uh, have your vote counted for other things that they put to a vote to their members, you know, we're going to stand for this. We're going to oppose that. Then that's the purpose of member dues. But um, uh, I, I don't know that um, I don't know. I don't know that I would want to say any more about what divisions you could join, because quite frankly, I, I kind of think they're all interesting. You know, I joke about the O&Mers driving me bananas, but the truth is uh, they and just about all of the divisions there, the teachers, all the rest of them, just interesting, interesting, unbelievably dedicated people. And, uh, you know, they're constantly working on the latest issues of the day uh, in their respective professions. And um, so anyway, I, I hope that, that at least gives you some th- some things to think about. It does. Thank you. Next, we have Jane. Thank you. Um, Mark, I'm happy to welcome you to Oklahoma. And now I'm no longer a member of AER because I'm one of those retired people. Uh, My question is about uh, competency certification for teaching Braille to uh, young students, either residential school students or uh, public school students. Before I retired, I had become very concerned about the lack of what I felt to be good transparencies in that field. Uh, We were kind of all over the place in terms of allowing, for example, superintendents to come in to the school settings with perhaps a very scant knowledge of Braille. And sure. there were even some teachers in, in the same situation. So I'm concerned about whether OAER is presently um, studying this or offering competency certificates in, in teaching Braille to students. Well, sir, the AER has, has any number of continuing ed sessions available up on the AERelearning.org site uh, where Braille is concerned. We don't actually do any kind of a AR, does not offer a micro-credential or something like that where Braille is concerned, though, quite candidly, that's a heck of a cool idea. I think I think we're all aware. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it would be kind of a neat concept. Um, so I'm going to talk more about that. You've got my little wheels turning here. You know, I, I think we all know that there is a, I think the National Federation of the Blind and uh, through uh, uh, NLS, someone correct me when I screw this up, I always do. You know, there's a, a, a Braille certification available there. For sure, we've heard uh, this issue mentioned many, many times over the years about you know, the extent to which, hey, when these teachers come out of their university programs, uh, what's their uh, Braille proficiency like? And like so many things, uh, it depends on the university and it depends on the human who came out of it. Uh, Plenty of them do seem to do quite a good job and are reported to have doing a good job. I certainly years ago when yours truly went to uh, public school, my TVIs were amazing uh, at it. But of course, we don't just think there are horror stories. We all have very real world examples of people who, you know, have no idea or perhaps their university program. Could have been a heck of a lot better in any number of areas, including this one. So for sure, there is a, a <laughs> it's probably most charitable to say there is a wide variety of experience out there. And, um, and, and the university people, as I'm sure you probably know, because this is of interest to you, but the university folks would say, 
especially the ones that even are the ones that are seen as being among the best in Braille instruction out there, you know, would say, uh, you know, look, you don't understand. We are we are a state school. We have certain uh, state imposed requirements on in our you know master's program. Thou shalt have X number of hours on in this area, X number of hours in that. The program is only so long. I don't know what you're expecting us to do after a semester or two semesters or whatever, you know, you three, even three or four courses. And then the person, you know, we can't necessarily do more than that. And the person graduates from that program. And perhaps they, even if they're in blindness, special ed and not just a, you know, a general, you know, general spec ed uh, person, it's entirely possible that they may not uh, be engaging their own brain in teaching Braille because of the, you know, perhaps the, caseload of students that they work with over the course of time. Obviously, every one of those things I just said has rebuttals to them. And Lord knows I've made them (laughs) Uh, over the course of time. uh, You know, gee, what do you mean you're not using Braille? I thought there was your your Braille skills. And so therefore, since you haven't used them in 15 years, you're not proficient. Gee, I thought for the last 15 years, if not, frankly, the last 25, uh, I think uh, there's been a requirement on the books that Braille be provided unless the IEP team determines determines otherwise, in which case, what in the heck are you not doing uh, and not teaching Braille for? So, uh, you know, there's lots of, of stuff out there, but I am making a note to myself, even as we speak, there we go, to think about this micro-credential idea. I love it. Thank you. Yep. Next, we have Jean. Yes, my name is Jean Jones, and uh, I've been a member of the council now for about 40 years. And I also i am one of the retirees, of whom uh-huh. we're meeting quite a few, uh, <laughs> from our state rehabilitation agency. I really have appreciated the work that you and others have done over the years in the issue and advocacy arenas. And Thanks so much. I and believe me, I have read and listened to uh, many of your legislative reports and particularly appreciated them. Appreciate My interest that. really at this stage is in issues that relate to vocational rehabilitation, some yep. of the changes that we've experienced under WIOA, mm-hmm. and in particular, um, the difficulties that we are now having in the rehabilitation system using BR dollars to pay for homemaker. And so I'm kind of wondering, and you may want to address this in your next session uh, or or when you talk with Jay about advocacy, but I'm kind of wondering whether AIR or any other organizations that you're working with have been doing anything to either try to to push RSA to loosen up somewhat on its interpretations or try to... (laughs) legislation that may correct that so that we could in the future be able to use those dollars to prepare people uh, to to be more independent and, sure. and either that work or not. But yep. uh, that issue is still out there. And so far, we haven't really been successful at, at getting um, anyone to budge on it. So I will I will uh, be quiet and let you tell me anything you can or answer it in the next Mark, I think this is the perfect time to just say you go ahead and do this and then go on to the idea of how we advocate in in today's political climate. You might as well yeah. 
answer this and that just sort of what Gene asks sort of segues into that whole idea of how are we doing it today if we're not going to the hill? Yeah, no, that's because, perfect. Be, you know, because of COVID. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, uh, it sounds great. So uh, let's see. So the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 has amended. It goes back that far. Um, uh, was, you know, the Congress has to periodically update it. They amend it, review it, sign off on it for another period of years. And that process is called reauthorization. The last reauthorization of the Rehab Act happened in 2014. Uh, and prior to 2014, the reauthorization, the immediate reauthorization before then was in 1998. So typically they, you know, uh, the Congress, if in normal days and times and whatever, uh, usually does a reauthorizes a piece of, you know, major program like that for a three, four, five, sometimes longer, five, six years period of time. And they give it a, 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 a termination point or they sunset it for all kinds of reasons, but for, for sure, uh, the idea being surely this is going to be needed. Uh, this change is going to be needed after some time. Let's let, let it alone and then we'll revisit it. Find out if the uh, public's money is being spent wisely on this or what do we need to do to change it? At least that's the theory. Um, and, but, uh, not only have things been strange. <laughs> in the last 10, 15 years in our politics for all the reasons we need not debate today. Uh, uh, but uh, the Rehabilitation Act in particular uh, has been combined, was combined in 1998 with a whole host of other job training programs. And that thing was called, I think, the Work Workforce Investment Act or WIA. And now at this latest go around, they're calling it, I think, was it uh, Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, or WIOA. So, in any case, the point I'm making is, <laughs> the for, our, yes, our politics is strange, and um, yes, Congress can't seem to uh, come together on various things, but the Rehabilitation Act and the failure to reauthorize it in, you know, from 1998 all the way until 2014 is a particularly bad uh, example of a failure to get things done. You say, well, why did it take so long? I mean, was the Rehab Act that complicated or that controversial? And the answer is there are plenty of little things in the Rehab Act to get advocates and whomever else administrators excited. Uh, but it wasn't the Rehab Act that took the problem, that, that caused the problems, the delays. Uh, it's any number of other just, uh, you know, normal politics of the various things catching the eye of this or that member of Congress and it taking forever to move something that massive through. So I bring all that up to say in 2014, that's when these changes that some things you're talking about uh, and where they had their, their origin, not so much that Congress took the homemaker thing away, but because of some of the em emphases in the law on, you know, uh, if something if we make, absolutely there must be this hardcore requirement that everything about voc re rehabilitation should be, uh, 110% focused on getting that person a job by gully. And by a job, they mean a competitive job, meaning at least minimum wage or better. And they mean in an integrated setting. We know about that. And it means for heaven's sake, they have to be paid. Uh, you know, for sure, it must be paid, meaning that non-compensated, uh, work outcomes would not be, uh, recognized. And that certainly is the tact 
that but the tack that um, the federal agency that enforces the law, the Rehabilitation Services Administration, or RSA, took uh, in the aftermath of the 2014 reauthorization. So then you say, well, gee, uh, that's just one of several you know challenges. You you pointed out in your question a couple of others. What in the world do we do about them? Well, I mean, obviously you can try to change the law itself if you wanted to. Uh, and uh, that's not for the faint of heart, because as you can see, uh, you might be working a heck of a long time uh, when it comes to the Rehab Act or revisions to WIOA, since heaven knows it took a heck of a long time before uh, to get it done. So an obvious choice is to focus on the Rehab Services Administration and try to get them to you know, essentially reverse course on past decisions. That it that is certainly um, doable. Federal agencies can do that and may do it on occasion, particularly if there are members of Congress you can enlist to help maybe lean on them. Now, in this particular situation, what you have is a you know a, a, a Democratic uh, White House and a Democratic uh, controlled House and Senate. You know, perhaps by in the Senate fifty fifty House narrow margin, but still, it's the same political party in charge of both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, which should usually mean that, you know, you should be able to get some friends on the Democratic side of the aisle to talk to a Democratic U.S. Department of Education, which is where Rehab Services Administration lives, and try to see, you know, gee whiz, uh, you guys came into power in January of this year. And, uh, you know, we talked to your predecessors, not only the Trump administration, but for sure, the Obama administration before it about some of these issues and uh, nothing was done, at least not to our satisfaction. Would you be willing to reopen this? And I know that there are groups that are taking the lead on that. I'm not, I would not I'd be a liar if I told you that, you know, AR was spending a lot of time on this issue. Quite frankly, as you can imagine, with few staff and far too much on the plate, we all kind of have to divide and conquer our friends at National Industries for the Blind. Uh, hopefully folks are aware of them. Uh, uh, very much are engaged in uh, all of the issues related to competitive integrated employment and other uh, areas. And I don't want to say they do more than ACB, but I, I'm, they certainly are as a kind of a divide and conquer uh, strength in numbers kind of thing going on there where NIB and ACB certainly are taking very much the lead on these, these issues. Hopefully folks are aware that in ACB, we do have a rehab issues task force that's done uh, some papers uh, on in on these topics, and certainly those advocacy materials have been circulated widely to not only folks on the Hill, but have been shared extensively and repeatedly uh, with the Department of Education and RSA in particular uh, over the course of time. And you know what is what's the stare into the crystal ball uh, forecast? I mean, I. I think I think it's the right thing to do to advocate for them. It's what we're paid to do, so we had better do it. Uh, but uh, the likelihood that they will change it is pretty slim, uh, because the Department of Education would say, "I hear what you're saying uh, about homemaker closure and some of these other things." But while the statute does not specifically say "Thou shalt not do homemaker closures anymore," the statute is pretty clear about the primacy of you know compensated. Uh, work outcomes and, you know, the first, second and third priority of Oak Rehab is to get someone a job. And that, and that job is going to look, you know, needs to look like a certain type of job, namely a paid 
well-paid, preferably integrated you know, job where someone's working in an integrated setting. And uh, so then, you know, the coda I'll give to all this is, so let's say that they don't fix it. What are the solutions? Well, so one of the reasons why we've been spending so much time working on sort of the aging and vision loss piece of things and spending a lot of time thinking about the older blind program is, you know, recognizing that if you've got someone certainly 55 years of age or older uh, who uh, may you know, be beginning to lose their vision, um, it, it career, continuing career, or perhaps going back into the workforce, you know, maybe this sure, of course, that could be a priority for them. But for many, it's not. And if you have a situation where particularly with the, uh, the you know, taking the option of a homemaker closure off the table, it puts that much more pressure on the OIB system, the older blind program system, uh, to try to make room for and provide services to to those folks. And the current system operates on about 34 million, I think it is, ish a year, $34 million to try to serve by some estimates up to what could be 12 million human beings across the country who you know, could benefit from those services. And really, they're only able to serve with the money they have about 60,000 people across the country. And when I say serve them, even that, that word itself is almost an exaggeration because the truth is, if you do the math on the, the number of humans getting something and the amount of money that's available, it's a little more than 500 bucks per person, which is just, you know, what are you going to get for that, right? Now, plenty of people get more than $500 worth of service, right? So what that tells you is there are a heck of a lot of folks who aren't getting nothing or they're getting precious little. And some states, I expect Oklahoma's in this fix, and there are certainly others for sure, would say, and what do you, you know, thanks for all that, all your pep talk and congratulations on how good we're doing here. Because, you know, honestly, uh, I don't know what you expect of us from the little money that we actually get from the federal government. And they have, they have a, a very good point. So one of the first things we need to do uh, it's it's not the only thing to do to try to advocate and push back on the homemaker thing, among other things. But certainly a primary strategy is to uh, expand funding for the older blind program. And that's not as impossible as you would expect. Uh, 20 years ago, the American Foundation for the Blind really led the blindness system uh, in uh, pushing for additional money for the older blind program. And uh, had some pretty pretty decent success with doing that, and it's going to take exactly that kind of effort again. I haven't mentioned in any of my ramblings here about an organization called the National Council of State Agencies for the Blind, or NCSCB, which is, as the name might suggest, is the Association of uh, Blindness, you know, blind uh, blind agency state heads and um, uh, and 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 others who work for them. Uh, Good group of folk. uh, ever vigilant, uh, and they, they certainly have opinions too, and are glad to glad to share them with all of us. Um, and I know that they certainly are. I mean, they'll forget more about the details of some of these things than some of us are ever going to know in terms of what's going on there. So, what does a group like NCSAB or us in AER or ACD? How do we push and advocate for things? Well, I will give you one quick real world example, and then I'll kind of. Uh, answer Jay's question straight on with a good smack on the head of that nail. Um, so uh, two weeks ago or so, uh, a number of us were on a Zoom call with, uh, her name is Katie Meese. Uh, 
Katie Neese, I've known her for 30 some years, brilliant, uh, cut her teeth on the policy disability space on Capitol Hill in the late 80s. Uh, I was still in school then, uh, but uh, in any case, uh, she was working on Capitol Hill and especially working, being one of the key staff working on the ADA, uh, you know, uh, uh, building the Americans with Disabilities Act um, that was signed into law in 1990. And uh, so from there, she went off to do a whole host of other things, including being the queen bee, as it were, of policy for the national, excuse me, the National Easter Seals uh, organization. And then, uh, and on and on. So she, she is a well-regarded soul and this, uh, and, and uh, deservedly so, because she's brilliant and a fantastic negotiator. She and I've worked together a fair bit in the special education uh, context where often we would be on opposite sides of the negotiation table on, um, you know, things like uh, the full inclusion of blind and visually impaired kids, for instance, or how we t- make sure we temper that zeal for the least restrictive environment with policy that ensures that, you know, what, gee whiz, the services that blind kids need are highly specialized. They may not be available there. So let's make sure that we're focused on getting the kids the services they need uh, and let the service that they need drive their placement, a special school all the time, partially, maybe just on an intermittent, intermittent basis or just in the summer or something like that, or whatever. Uh, use If it's not just straight up mainstream in every mainstream class, but perhaps there's a resource room kind of setting or, you know, that whole continuum of options, right? And I will say to you that Katie Neese was uh, a fierce uh, advocate for positions, some of which we didn't necessarily agree on. But what was amazing about her and still is, is that she's exactly the kind of person professional that you would want uh, to work with, which is to say, agreeing with you 80% of the time, the 20% you don't is pretty tough, but you get up from that table and the next thing you know, she's coming over asking you how you're feeling. You want to go for a cup of coffee, chit chat. Next thing you know, the next day or the next month, you're in a different meeting and she's back on your side, fighting side by side on things you do agree with. A consummate professional is, I guess, the point I'm trying to drive home for you. She is now the highest ranking politically appointed officer in the federal government overseeing everything touching, frankly, disability education and rehabilitation. She is the acting uh, assistant secretary for something called OSERS, which is the Office of Special Ed and Rehabilitative Services. So in that office, she oversees all of the Department of Ed's special ed functionality, and then certainly uh, overseeing the functions at the Rehab Services Administration. So she is a fantastic uh, friend to have, and that's who we got to talk to uh, a couple of weeks ago by Zoom. The team that I was with in this particular meeting was all about special education issues and trying to get the U.S. Department of Education to update policy guidance for blind and visually impaired education policy guidance, as they say, that hasn't been updated in 21 years, and that would be of tremendous value, you know, if it were up to date for parents and administrators and professionals, AER members and such, uh, for sure. And she was very uh, open about things. And I think there's a very real likelihood that certainly before the Biden administration first term is up. So by, you know, certainly January 20th of 2025 (laughs) at the earliest, uh, the United States Department of Education is very likely to have uh, 
done the updates that we're asking for. So, you know, that's a long way of saying, what does advocacy look like in COVID? And it's weird because you are not seeing people face to face, um, but it can be just as effective and just as worth your time if you've got someone in that meeting with you that you can really work with. To put it very directly, in that sense, it ain't much different than it's, than it's ever been, which is to say, the only thing that makes it a waste of time is if you've got a jerk who just stares at you or just says yes to you all the time without meaning it. And, you know, that dynamic of being able to get to them in a virtual way certainly eliminates a lot of the, the cost associated, certainly for, for grassroots, good, you know, God-fearing people like yourselves out there in Oklahoma. You none of this business of necessarily having to travel to D.C. or something to be able to, uh, to go do appointments in person. I still think that's highly effective for sure. I'm not demeaning it. I've done so much of it in my life. I'd be crazy to talk about it, to, to, to denigrate it. But for sure, I think, um, you know, the fact that we're doing it virtually means that you can eliminate some of those barriers. I'll tell you what it does impact this virtual thing. And that is the happenstance encounters, you know, with members of Congress. You know, the senator who happens to be running back into the office, next thing you know, you weren't expecting to meet her or him. And now there you are meeting those rights. So that's the fun of that dynamic. The spontaneity of that's gone. But the spontaneity of talk with uh, staff uh, who, you know, may only have 10 minutes to offer you in your meeting, but you go there in person, they're chit chatting away with you. And the next thing you know, they get a message saying, well, the hearing we were going to be going to, has been delayed or whatever. And now you've got more time, right? Because you're, you're already in the office, you capture them. Or just uh, being able to casually say to somebody while you're, who you're meeting with, hey, we're here to talk about, and you know, ACB does this all the time. You, we're here to talk about three issues. The staffer you have maybe is, you know, conversant with one, but the whole office, of course, carries different issues. And if you've got an in-person meeting with somebody, and they're chit-chatting away. Often, if you get to the third issue, they say, well, I don't do special ed, but, you know, Cindy does it. Let me pull her in. Or, you know, she might just happen to be sitting there. It's that kind of stuff. And it's really, honestly, uh, most of the things that I would say were, wow, that was a really great day up on Capitol Hill, were days when it wasn't the actual meetings that you had scheduled, the pre-scheduled stuff. It was all of that sort of wow, that's amazing. We weren't planning that. Or we you know, ran into so-and-so or we, and those kinds of things, of course, when you're doing Zooms, you know, you meet at 10, 15, we have 15 minutes and you're done and boom. And it's, there's not a whole lot of that interactivity. So you say, well, how do you, how do you correct for that? And I think the answer simply there is it means that you actually need to do more of those kinds of interactions. In other words, almost create the context or force the, the communication. So if you say, hi, we've met with so-and-so in your office. I'm not the person who, you know, has expertise and everything. You really need to meet with so-and-so. Well, now, there you go. Now you've got yet more homework to do by scheduling yet another Zoom. And I think, uh, you know, it's not an elegant solution, but it's really the only way to handle it. Uh, you know, I, I think on balance, um, it's probably a good thing. Uh, that in terms of being able to focus more on this remote, uh, you know, virtual kind of way of doing doing the advocacy because it eliminates a lot of expensive barriers like travel. And certainly for those of us who are blind or visually impaired, 
even the best of us who are, you know, amazing superstar, you know, cane or dog users, whatever, you know, Hey, uh, it's a lot of walking and moving around and, you know, I could use a little more exercise than I get. So maybe that's why I've put on more weight in the last two years because I haven't been wandering around Capitol Hill, but, um, you know, uh, it certainly eliminates a lot of that nonsense. Uh, so, so it makes, you know, focuses us on the meetings themselves and brings people to those meetings who might not otherwise be able to come. I think about the special education meetings I've had, uh, somewhat recently where, you know, there are consumers who join who have all kinds of other complex health troubles. And so, you know, trying to actually get out of the house is itself a challenge to say nothing of come to Washington or go to the state capitol to meet your legislator or whatever. And uh, to be able to, you know, have those folks join by Zoom and frankly, to hear them tell their stories directly to policymakers is unbelievably compelling. And so in that sense, I think there are certainly opportunities there because it makes it even stronger case. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, you're still, it's all about relationships, right? I've said that tons of times. It's really fundamentally about building a relationship with a member of Congress or certainly in the Oklahoma context, right? Your state legislators for sure. And the way it's, it's not unlike any other relationship you have. You want to be friends with somebody, you like them, you want to, okay. The first thing you do when you go, you know, you meet a person, you want to be their friend. You don't stick your hand out and say, Hey, you look like someone I might want to be friends with. You got, you got 20 bucks. Uh, I've never found that to be a good strategy of making a friend. Uh, But so what you want to do is start reaching out however you can, whether it's in an in-person meeting or virtual, whatever. And it's literally the business of this is who I am. Here are the groups I'm associated with. Yeah, here are some things I, I care about, but I'm primarily not here to ask you to do something for me. I'm here to basically say, I'm your man or woman on the spot when it comes to blindness-related issues, would love to help, and, uh, you know, look forward to getting to know you and your colleagues here in this office, and, uh, you know, be rest assured, I will be back, and probably be bringing back with uh, some friends with me uh, to hit you all up for some help with some things, but I just want to, you know, get started on getting you to know who I am. And then that relationship builds over time. As I was at National Industries for the Blind, which was my first public policy job in 94, 95, 96, a period of time. And you know, I've been there for about a year and a half. And then all of a sudden, I get a call one day from a young lady from one, an office. It was actually from uh, uh, Illinois. It was an Illinois congressman's office. And I'd met with this staffer a bunch of times on any number of things. And she calls and says, yeah, um, yeah, my boss is actually going to be doing uh, a, a presentation for, for a, a blindness group. And I'd just be interested in hear, you know, hearing from you uh, what you think. Uh, you know, would be some hot topics to, to raise or some things we'd want to, uh, have him suggest. And of course, after asking her a couple questions about it, what did I find out when she said her boss, she meant the congressman and the blindness organization she was talking about was the NFB and it was for their national convention. So here I am, 26 years old, thinking I knew everything and of course knew less than nothing, but I had done all this work chit-chatting with different members, including her, and here she is calling up this 26-year-old, you know, uh, brainiac, basically saying, tell me what you want, what words you want to have out of a congressman's mouth doing a keynote address for the National Federation of the Blind National Convention. You know, that sort of thing doesn't happen unless you work that relationship and that's ultimately, frankly, the kind of place you want to be in, where you get to a point where 
they're reaching out to you for advice. Okay. So with that. Okay. Sandy Evans. I'm Sandy Evans and I'm a counselor with services for the blind and visually impaired. And um, I actually knew you when I was an ACB intern back when in the day. Oh my goodness sake. Um, But my question was somewhat on the previous topic um, was Braille transcribing. And um, are you familiar with the new developments on classes for Braille transcribing? With, uh, I've heard some um, about this, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I didn't know if you knew other, you know, for Braille production, et cetera, um, for a vocation. Oh, you mean uh, if, what opportunities there are to become a Braille transcriber? Well, I know there was some more recent developments on um, classes and certifications. I didn't know mm-hmm. if you knew anything about that. I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm clicking with what you're you're saying, but I'm happy to look into it a little bit and see if, what I can find out. Okay, I do know that um, the National, uh, the Library of Congress had done mm-hmm. one with the um, NFB that they're mm-hmm. offering classes now. So I didn't. Know yeah, I, 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 I can believe that. I can believe that. I think Hadley was Hadley still do it. I think there was some talk about uh, whether or not if they were going to scale back their Braille training. I don't know. I, th- I thought I heard that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that was just about Braille music. I think that might be it. It may be that Hadley's Braille music program might be a bit scaled back, I think, because demand was pretty low. But um, I could be wrong about that. Okay. I just want to remark, Mark, remark, Mark, that um, when I was doing the advocacy work that you're talking about, going to the Hill, the exact thing happened to me that you talked about. I was in to see Senator Lankford on behalf of OCB. And, of course, James Lankford is a, one of the senators from uh, Oklahoma. Yeah. And while I was in there waiting to speak to the aide on our, on our imperatives, in walks Lankford. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, who's this? And I, I introduced myself and everything. So he stood there for a couple of minutes before he was going back to his meeting to hear what I had to say. And he said, uh, he said to his aide, uh, get that information from him. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that was, a, exactly. that was the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that happened by going yeah. first, you know, going in person. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's, it's, it's not only kind of fun. And of course, you know, uh, look, let's <coughs> be a real realistic probably the majority of the time when those kinds of things happen, I mean, these people are politicians, right? They know how to mm-hmm. be Mr. Mr. Charmer. And uh, you know, maybe the, you know, the aides see this sort of thing all the time where the member wants to show off for the little, you know, friends right. back home. Right. right. But, but the truth is that it's not all that cynical that sure, maybe that happens most of the time, but a good chunk of the time it's, it's, it's truly meaningful. I mean, I, I remember being, with uh, this is when I first worked at AER back in the day, uh, so uh, 2002, 2003, something like that, and I went in to see um, a staff person from now the late uh, Senator Wellstone from from uh, from uh, Minnesota, and the lady who was the uh, chair of AER at the time, the president Elaine Sven, who was the head of the uh, one of the Minnesota School for the Blind and the Deaf up there. Um, you know, she, of course, she's a constituent. So we're, we're there chit-chatting away with the, the staff. And Wellstone comes in, and there we are. The man literally spent 20 minutes with us, 
ask very insightful questions. And as, I mean, right in front of us to his staff said, yeah, we're going to, we're, we're co-sponsoring this thing. You know, it's just, that's it. Boom. This, this is just done. That's, and you know, God, I mean, I, obviously, as you can tell, I mean, I, I'm, I smile about it today. And of course it's sad to think, you know, the, the man within a year of that meeting, he was in a, you know, a terrible, there's a plane crash uh, yes. and uh, lost his life. But I mean, it, it is exactly that kind of dynamic where you never know what's going to happen. And of course, like they, like it's uh, so often said, you know, uh, you uh, you got to be there, right? You, you you have to be there, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, for sure. What's uh, uh, that? There's another thing. If you're if you're not uh, at the table, then you're likely on the menu, right? That's another little favorite little Washington phrase, meaning that you know if you're not there, showing up, sitting there at that negotiation table. It's likely that what they're going to be negotiating about in your absence is you <laughs> and how to how to cut you, right? how to cut you out, because there are going to be other people at that table. So it literally is a, a, a presence thing. And there certainly is nothing quite like being there physically, uh, for sure. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking time today to visit with us and be a part of this uh, session. I, I think it was very I know it was very informative and entertaining, and uh, I hope that uh, those of you who have been participating, uh, listening in, have benefited from this. And Mark, tomorrow we'll be back to you to uh, talk about something that I know that a lot of people have been dealing with, especially because of this COVID thing, and that is dealing, coping with depression as yep. a visually impaired person. So we'll be looking forward to hearing your thoughts tomorrow. Very good, uh, sir. I will thank you all so much. It's always an honor to talk to my ACB buddies. So really appreciate it.